Well, it's great to have uh, a load of visitors with us here this morning. It's lovely to have you with us. Uh, I know a number have come, especially for this occasion, with the baptism of Hannah and Jensi. Uh, we're, as a church, going through the Gospel of Mark. We had a wonderful time last weekend. Some of you, many of you were here to see the, the drama, the Mark drama. And we're nearly at the end of Mark's Gospel. And so if you'd like to turn in your Bibles or devices, please, to Mark chapter 15. We just sung Beneath the Cross of Jesus. I would gladly take my stand. And we're going to think about the cross of Jesus for a few minutes this morning. So please turn to Mark chapter 15. Jesus has just been before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And verse 1 of 15, as soon as it was morning, this is Good Friday morning, we would call it, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. He's the Roman governor. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. Maybe those are your words, is how we should understand that. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, that's the Passover feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a, a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, 
which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. It's an anesthetic. He was not prepared to take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. That's about nine o'clock in the morning. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers. <clears throat> I think the word is better translated terrorists. These were almost certainly people caught up in the insurrection. One on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, about midday, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was son of God, the son of God, or a, a son of God. Well, let's pray together and ask for God's help. Our Father, this is your word, not ours. Through Mark, from yourself, please help us to listen as if we were listening to the very words of God. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, we are here for a baptism, two baptisms. We're about to witness people publicly pledging allegiance to Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. And for nearly 2,000 years in the history of the church, Easter has been the great time for baptism. Because baptism speaks eloquently of Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's a claim on the part of those who are being baptized to participate in that death and resurrection, truly but spiritually. They're saying, this has been my experience, by faith and now by symbol. So down into the waters of death to symbolize participation in Jesus' death. That's what you'll see happen in a few minutes' time. His death, of course, a cleansing death. Lots of water here to speak of that cleansing. 
and then up out of the water to life again, to symbolize participation in Jesus' resurrection, his powerful resurrection. And those being baptized are publicly and decisively saying yes to following Christ for life and eternity. And they're doing it in the way that Jesus commanded it to be done. But why follow Jesus? That's the question I want us to think about for a few minutes this morning. Why follow Jesus? There are many alternatives in the world. There are religious alternatives, for example, Islam. There are secular alternatives, strong in this country, like what some people call expressive individualism. You, you express the fact that I will decide what's right for my life. No one else will tell me. Now, the passage we read just now from Mark's account of Jesus, and in particular of his death, gives us, it seems to me, two reasons why we should follow Jesus. Number one, because of what he did on the cross. He suffered in our place. Verses 33 and 34. And when the sixth hour, that's midday roughly, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, of course, we've jumped into the story that Mark gives us towards the end. And he is assuming at this point that we've been reading from the beginning. And if you've been with us through Mark, you'll know that in Mark 10:45 we, we reached a, a crucial moment where Jesus explains the significance of his death and the effect of his death. It's this phrase in Mark 10:45. He says, the Son of Man, that's referring to himself, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I don't think I need to explain what a ransom is. I think most of us know what a ransom is. A ransom is a, is a price that's paid to set someone free. Now, you know in history that people are taken captive. They're treated as pawns or bargaining tools, whether it's countries doing it or, or gangs or whatever. And they're looking for something to set this person free. They're looking for a price to be paid. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to pay a price to set people free, the price for forgiveness, free of the guilt and condemnation of your sinful record. And what is happening here as we get to the end of Mark and see that Jesus is finally here giving his life, it's as a ransom, it's to set people free. So something is going on here that has the idea of ransom at the heart of it. And again, if you've been reading through Mark, you'll know that Jesus described his death as drinking a cup, the cup of God's wrath, down to the dregs. He described his death as undergoing a baptism, which was actually a common word. It wasn't a religious word originally. It was a word for just immersing something, like pots and pans in the washing up, or a, a boat that sank was now a wreck, immersed under the water, a baptized boat. And Jesus is talking about baptism, I think, as an overwhelming experience of suffering that goes over his head, as it were. And as Jesus hung on the cross, 
He was giving his life as a ransom to set people free. He was drinking the cup of God's wrath in place of people like you and me so that we don't have to drink that cup ourselves. He was immersed in that agony which is expressed here in verse 34 so that we never have to experience that agony of separation from God. I mean, one of the striking things, I don't know if you noticed it as we were reading through, is how Mark does not dwell at all on the physical pain. Now, Hollywood directors may dwell on it, but Mark and the gospel writers do not dwell on it. So, for example, verse 15, it just says, Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified. Verse 20, they led him out to crucify him. Nothing else said. Verse 25, it was the third hour when they crucified him. No gruesome details, because that is not the focus of attention as far as Mark and the writers of the Gospels are concerned. No, the focus of the attention is somewhere else. It's actually expressed in verse 33, that darkness over the whole land. Now, what is that about? What is this extraordinary darkness in the middle of the day? Hot Middle Eastern day, the sun burning down, suddenly it goes dark, completely dark. Well, if you know your Bible, if you know the story of the liberation of the people of Israel from Egypt, you'll know that the ninth of the ten plagues, the tenth was the, the death of the firstborn, which was the final straw which eventually actually got the people of Israel out of Egypt. But the one before, the culmination of all the other nine, is actually what? Darkness. As it's described in Exodus, the darkness you could feel. That thick. Now, that is language is not used here, but it's the, the language of darkness is used, and that darkness is an indication of God's anger. And yet, why would God be angry with Jesus? I mean, Mark has underlined that when he's standing before the judge in verse 14, and Pilate knows he's innocent. If you read the other gospel records, they make it even clearer. But Pilate asks the cry to obeying for Jesus' blood. He says, why? Verse 14, what evil has he done? In other words, he's done nothing wrong. This is a travesty of justice. This is an innocent man standing before us. Innocent yet anguished as he cries out in verse 34, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But again, if you have a knowledge of the Bible, you'll know that this is actually not words that Jesus has made up made up on the spot. He's quoting directly from Psalm 22, verse 1. He feels abandoned by God, and yet he can still call him my God. He still has that relationship with God, even at the moment where he feels like God has forsaken him. And as we ask ourselves, what is going on here? We remember, surely, what Jesus said in, in chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He's paying a price to set us free. Something is going on. He's experiencing something, awful as it is, to set us free so that we don't have to experience that forsakenness. In other words, Jesus is suffering in the place of people like us. He's taking our sins as if they were his own. He drank the cup that we should drink. He was forsaken that we might be forgiven and never forsaken. 
Well, I think that's a good enough reason on its own to follow Jesus. Because of what he did on the cross for people like you and me. He suffered in our place so that we won't have to. But I think there's a second reason here why we should follow Jesus. It's in verse 39. It's because of who he is in himself, the Son of God. Now, as we were reading through, uh, if I were to ask you at the end um, of our reading, if I said, what do you think the dominant theme is that Mark flags in this section of his, his book? Well, I think a very good candidate is this phrase that we find first in verse 2, the king of the Jews. Do you see how it's repeated? So Pilate is, asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And then verse 9 comes again, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Verse 18, they began to salute him. Okay, this is in mockery, but they know that that's what he's been called, the king of the Jews, and Mark underlines that. And then verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of of the Jews. That's what the Roman governor decided he'd stick up at the top, above Jesus' head, on the top of the cross. This is the charge. This is why this man's being crucified, because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And this is what the religious establishment mock between themselves in verse 32. Let the Christ, the Messiah, the king of Israel. Oh, he thinks he's the king of the Jews, does he? Well, let him come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they derided, you see in verse 29, people were deriding the claim that Jesus would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. What a ridiculous claim. Well, says Mark, do you know what happened the moment that Jesus died? Across Jerusalem, in the temple, something extraordinary. Verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the curtain of the temple was about as high as the wall behind me. It was as thick as a man's hand, 30 feet tall, a good inch or two thick. And where did it tear from? Was it from the bottom? Was it two people or a group of people at the ends on the, on the bottom pulling to try and tear it from the bottom? No, it tore from the top. How could you tear such a curtain from the top? Well, it's an act of God. This is supernatural. But you see what's going on. It's not, I think, saying now the way is open. I used to think that, but I think in the context it's saying that very thing that Jesus, you're mocking that Jesus said he would do, which was to destroy the temple. The moment he dies, it begins. There is a token of the destruction of the temple. The very huge curtain was torn, just like that. Oh yes, Jesus can destroy the temple. You know, the question that people would ask when they saw Jesus' stupendous power at work, close up, like his followers in the boat when he stilled the storm with a word, be quiet, raging storm, be quiet. And the next moment, not only did the, the wind stop, but the waves went flat as a pancake within a second. 
And what was it they said? They drew back in fear and they said, who is this man? Even the wind and waves obey him. Who is this? Well, his close followers concluded that he was definitely the Messiah, the promised king sent by God to deliver his people from their oppressors. But they couldn't believe in a crucified Messiah. As soon as Jesus started to talk about, yes, he was the promised king, but he was going to lay down his life, they would kill him and torture him. And on the third day, he would rise. When he, they, he used that language of, of death, they could not take it. Peter rebuked him, do you remember? They could not believe in a crucified Messiah. And now as Jesus hangs on a cross, feeling abandoned by God, he utters a loud cry and breathes his last. He doesn't go out with a whimper. He goes out, if you'll forgive the expression, with a bang. What on earth is going on? Well, one of the fascinating things about this gospel is that the first human being to grasp what is going on was a low-ranking officer in the army of the hated Roman occupiers. Verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing Jesus in charge of the crucifixion, this man, saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was son of God. Now, he hasn't got a great developed theology of the Trinity at this point, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he knows that he has seen, he is looking at someone whose death, this person who's died is no ordinary human. Human, yes, but more than that. He is son of God. It's the only category that he can express to say here is someone who is qualitatively different, someone who is divine, Contrary to all appearances, hanging on a cross, just breathed his last. Truly, this man, son of God. And if you've been reading Mark from the beginning, you'll be going, yes! Because right at the beginning of Mark, what is it he said he set out to establish? It's great news, and this is the start of it, he says, the beginning of the great news, the gospel of Jesus, Messiah, his disciples got there in chapter 8, Son of God. The centurion got there in chapter 15. So, Mark has achieved his purpose. He's demonstrated that Jesus is not only the Christ, he's the Son of God. What a gospel. What a message. Why follow Jesus? Because of what he's done. He suffered in our place. Because of who he is, he truly is the Son of God. And even in his death, in his extremity, as he breathed his last in such a way, this Roman soldier confesses what Mark has sought to establish through his gospel. This is not only the Messiah, the promised king. He is Son of God, the Son of God. So the question for us, each one of us, is this. Are we following him? Are you following him? Like Hannah and Jensi. Well, let me finish with two things from this story, one of which might stop you from following, one of which might start you following, just very briefly. 
What might stop you from following is a great stumbling block that we find here in the middle of this passage. There it is in verse 15. In fact, both things are in verse 15. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He should be letting him free. But what does he do? He does the opposite of what he knows he should be doing. Why? Verse 15, Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd. He suffers from foop. Have you come across foop? Fear of others' opinion. Maybe you know what the right thing to do is. Maybe as you consider what is happening here this morning and you, you see Hannah and Jensi being baptized because they're wanting to tell the world that yes, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior and I'm going to follow him for the rest of my days. You're thinking, this same Jesus who, I know what he did. He suffered for, for my sins. I know who he is. He's the Son of God. But I'm just afraid, afraid of what my parents will think, what my friends will think, what my spouse will think, what my workmates, my neighbors, whoever it might be, I'm just afraid of, of what they'll think. And so I'm not going to do it because I need to satisfy the crowd. I need to keep them happy. I need to keep them on side. That can be a great stumbling block to following Jesus, and it might be stopping you. Well, at least name it, at least see it, at least realize that that is what is going on in your heart and mind. Fear of other people's opinion. You want to satisfy the crowd so you're not going to do the right thing. Please don't do that, if that's stopping you. Secondly, if that's a great stumbling block, here's a great springboard in verse 15. Now, it's, it's a, what happens, inst instead of releasing Jesus, Pilate releases Barabbas. Now, have you ever thought what kind of a day Barabbas had that first Good Friday? He woke up on death row. That's where he was, facing the real possibility. He was a terrorist murderer, and the Romans didn't take kindly to such people. He faced the real possibility that by the end of the day he'd have been crucified or hanging on a cross. When he woke up on death row, he went to bed a free man. Why? Because someone was crucified in his place. Now, it's a beautiful picture, I think, of God's forgiveness. We don't know whether Barabbas ever followed Jesus, sure. But what a lovely picture of someone who goes home set free because someone has died in his place. And you know, there is no sin too great to be forgiven. I don't know what you've done in your life. God knows. I don't know what you've thought in your life. God knows. And you remember how Jesus said, it's not just what you do, it's what you think that God judges. Well, that means we're all on death row, doesn't it? None of us is free. And yet because Jesus died and suffered in our place, we can go to bed tonight free from guilt, forgiven forever. So if you haven't yet started following Jesus, why don't you start today? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that Mark wrote the beginning of the great news of Jesus, Messiah, the Son of God. And as we as a church family have reached very nearly the end of the story, thank you that today we've seen how even in Jesus' death, as he breathed his last, that Roman soldier couldn't stop himself blurting out the truth that surely this man was, is, Son of God. Father, we thank you so much for bringing Hannah and Jency to this point in their lives. You know at what point each of us is in our lives, in our relationship with you. You know why we're here or listening to this. And we pray that if we're stumbling over anything, be it satisfying the crowd or whatever it might be, Lord, please help us not only to know the right thing to do, but to do the right thing. And as we think of Barabbas and how he, his day changed so dramatically from the probability of execution to the fact of freedom, Lord, please would you help us to see that Jesus' death is for us in our place so that we may walk free of guilt and sin and death and your judgment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.